following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And these are God's words. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus it's good to see y'all this morning. Um, I want to try to I want to try to unpack um, the very foundation of what we believe to be the faith. Uh, what it's it's what we hang our, all of our all of our practice and all of our activity and all of our doing upon. We hang it upon the gospel. And, what, and what's interesting about that is that if you were to talk to a lot of just average Christians on your, on your, in your neighborhood or on your block, you would find that, that even though we hang everything on this, on this doctrine, the gospel, that a lot of them would not know what it really is. A lot of, a lot of your average Christians that you run into on a day-to-day basis would have no clue what is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were to ask somebody, you know, what is say or, or to, to explain to you the gospel, many people would give you, for example, their testimony. And they would say, well, this is, this is how I came to faith in Jesus. And some people would tell you, if you ask them to explain the gospel to you, some people would tell you how God has changed their life and, and, how, and how they once were, were just wretched sinners and, and, and did everything under the sun, but God came along and he, and he cleaned their lives up. And, and those things would be true as well. Um, if you were to ask some people about what is the gospel, they would talk about loving neighbor and, 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 and taking care of the least and, and showing mercy to those who are in need of mercy. And that would be good. All of those things would be healthy. All of those things would be good. But let me share something with you. None of those things are actually the gospel. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is what it is. What is the actual gospel? Because even though, even though you may think to yourself, well, of course, all of us in the room are Christians, so we all know the gospel, it may surprise you that maybe we don't know it as, we think, as, we, as good as we think we do or as well as we think we do. So I want to talk about the gospel. As a matter of fact, I want to talk about the gospel of but now. The very first two words in this passage that we're reading this morning, but now. Because those two words really begin to unpack for us the entire gospel. The words, but now. The words that begin the transition from verses 9 through 20 
in verses 20, uh, 2, verses 21 and 31. So there's, there's verses 9 through 20, that's one chunk. Verses 21 through 31, that's another chunk. And in between those verses is two words, but now. And those words are absolutely essential to us understanding this passage. But now, like so many other scriptures, these two words are connecting two thoughts. But the question is, how are they connecting these particular thoughts together? Sometimes the connecting words, you know, when we, when we look at scripture, sometimes we see connecting words um, connect two thoughts that one thought was, you know, maybe stating one thing. And then the second thought is an explanation of the former thought. Sometimes the connecting words may be where a previous thought was stating one thing and the, and the second thought may be an expansion. It may expound on the previous thoughts. But here it's neither one of those. It's not an explanation. It's not an expansion. Here, the words, the connecting words, but now, represent a shift in direction. They represent a turn in, in direction from the previous thoughts to the new thoughts. The new thoughts coming after the but now, in other words, will be moving in a totally different direction than the previous thoughts of but, but that came before but now. In order to see that transition, though, let's take a look at the previous thoughts. Let's read together or look, look with me as I read Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks God or seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one, is, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Those are the former thoughts before but now. And those thoughts represent our position before God before but now. Our position in God before but now. This first passage, that passage that we just read, is meant to answer one primary question, and it's this. Can anyone stand before God on their own merit? Can anyone go to God, and, and, and can anyone enter into the kingdom of God based on their own accomplishments? When Paul asks this question, are we Jews any better off in verse 9, he is asking a valid question for if we are to say, it is, it is they who have been given the Old Testament that we read, and it is, it is they who God chose as his covenant people, and it is they who we get all the great ancient Bible, Bible followers of God like Moses and David and Joseph and Noah and Abraham. So if all the people in the world, if there are any who would have a right to claim that they are righteous before God and that they can get into the kingdom of God based on their own merit and that they can get into the kingdom of God based on their own 
own accomplishments, it would be this group of people, the Jews. And yet, Paul is saying, are we Jews any better off than the rest of the world who did not have the law of God, who did not have the heroes or, the, or those that followed God, the ancients such as Moses and Noah and Abraham, who did not, uh, was, was not called as God's covenant people? Are we any better off than any of them? And Paul's answer is no. No. According to Paul, the worst sinner and the best sinner carry the same standing before God. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, basically saying non-Jews, are under sin. In other words, everybody is under sin, under its bondage, under its weight, under its penalty. Yesterday, I watched two professional football teams compete in a, in a, in a game, and they battled their hearts out. And some of you guys at this point are trying to figure out, wait a second, football season isn't even on yet, but I'm talking about soccer, right, the other football. The rest of the world calls soccer football. We, we, we're just the only people that call soccer soccer because, you know, we're American like that. So nevertheless, two football teams are, are battling it out, and they're fighting, and they're, they're clawing, and, and they're running their hearts out for 90 minutes, 90-plus minutes, trying to compete. And you got one team that, that, that actually rises to the occasion, rises a little bit above the skill set of the other team, scores two goals, takes the lead, and holds on to that lead and wins the game 2-0. to zero. And that team placed third because it was the third-place game in the tournament. It was the third-place game. So even though that team was better, the team didn't win anything. The team won nothing. What's the point in that? Well, here, here's the point. If you compare yourself with the rest of the world to determine your standing before God, and you say, well, I'm better than that guy, or I'm better than that lady, or I'm not nearly as bad as that person. Or my uncle that comes in and, you know, and every time he comes in, I got to keep my eye on him because I don't know if he's going to take, take, you know, take my, you know, take my fresh new chucks or take my new jersey or take my cash out of my drawer. I'm better than him. If that's your comparison, then you are competing for third place in a game that requires first place to win. You can't make the comparison with other people to, to determine whether or not you're good with God. You have to make the comparison to the standard that he has set. And that's what Paul is doing. He's, he's saying that, listen, Jews, maybe we do have the law, and maybe we do have great ancient history, and maybe we do have great followers like Noah and Abraham and, 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 and Isaiah and the great prophets. Maybe we do have all of that, and yet... We're comparing ourselves to human standards, not God's. When we compare ourselves to God's standards, we realize that we too are in trouble. We too are guilty. So you may be a great guy in your circles. I don't know. You may be a great woman in your circles. They might, they might carry you on their shoulders as you walk into the office on Monday morning. I don't know what you do in your office, but what I'm saying is, is that that is not enough to give you standing in heaven. What ruler are you using? What ruler are we using? 
When Paul uses, when, when the ruler that Paul uses is the ruler of the ruler. That's the ruler he's using when he writes verses 10 through 21. When he says, none is righteous, no, not one, he's not using your ruler. He's using the ruler's ruler. When he says that no one understands and no one seeks after God, he's not using your ruler. When he says that their mouth is full of curses and bitterness and their throat is an open grave and their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are filled with ruin and misery and there is no fear of God before their eyes, he's not using your ruler, he's using the ruler's ruler. No human being, according to Paul, will be justified in the sight of God by doing the works of the law, by just doing good things. No human being, according to Paul, will be justified by simply obeying the law. And why is that? Because with the law, not only comes the standard to obey, in other words, now I know what to do, but with the law also comes the unveiling of how much of, the, how much of that which I know to do, I don't do. Are you tracking with that? The law just doesn't show us what to do, but the, but the law shows us how much of what to do we don't do. And you can't avoid it. There's no soul on earth that can ever say, I've obeyed the law perfectly. And with that knowledge comes the guilt of sin before a holy God. We're okay if we're measuring ourselves by ourselves, but the standard is God. And we're facing death because Paul also tells us in this same book that the wages of sin, the wages of transgressing God's law, at any point in time, at any, at, at, at any minute detail of it, is death. The payment for sin is death. We see this from the very beginning of creation. Adam is hanging out in the Garden of Eden with his wifey. They're enjoying life. Eating great food, I imagine. Fruit has to be amazing in the Garden of Eden, right? Except for one, right? Except for one, don't touch it. They touch it, they eat it. And they immediately inherit death. Do you understand that? One transgression against the law of God, and they immediately inherit death. And, that, and that, that, that lineage of death follows every single one of us and has followed us ever since. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so now Adam's seed, Adam's seed of sin has now followed every single one of us throughout time. The Bible says in that same chapter, Romans 5, that one trespass led to the condemnation of all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By the one man's disobedience, all of us were made sinners. Our condition before God is based on our, if it's based on our merit, it's not a healthy condition to be thinking about. You will not earn God's favor because we aren't good enough. Simply put, no one is. You will earn God's eternal award only by doing all that he acts perfectly. And that, my friends, is a scary proposition to think on. Understanding this is the key to understanding this but now in verse 21. I said this but now is not simply an expansion of a thought. It's not an explanation of a thought. It's a shift in thought. 
So knowing what we know about verses 9 through 20, Paul says, but now. If you don't understand 9 through 20, then all the things that come after 9 through 20 are easily misunderstood. For example, when you read Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you don't understand the but now, or you don't understand what comes before the but now, you'll take that verse and you'll misunderstand it. You'll misexplain it. Many of you heard that verse. Many of your family members have quoted it. Many, many of you have quoted it. I've quoted it. But we've often quoted it as a source of comfort and a source of reassurance that nobody is perfect, right? You sin, I sin, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Hey, take a, take a break, man. Don't worry about it, right? We're, none of us are perfect. That's not what that verse was intended to show. What that verse was intended to show you is that all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glorious standard that God has set, and therefore all of us are guilty. That's what it was meant to show you. And 9 through 20 helps you understand that now. But now. Every one of us are sinners, but now. Every one of us are guilty, but now. Every one of us are facing a, a, a penalty of eternal death, but now. Every one of us in our natural condition are incapable of standing before God, are incapable of not sinning, are incapable of receiving a pardon for all of the wrong, wrong we've done, but now. But now. With those two words, Paul moves us from the position that we had in God to the present or the gift that we enjoy in God because of his intervention. What we had before the but now was a position in God. What we have after the but now is a present from God or a gift from God. Romans 3.21, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Believe it or not, Romans 3 through 21, I'm sorry, 321 through 26 is one long sentence. In the Greek, it's one sentence. All five of those verses is one big sentence. Some theologians call this one big sentence the very center of the entire letter that Paul writes to Rome. In other words, they say this is the center of Romans right here, verses 21 through 26 of chapter 3. Martin Luther, the uh, European reformer, the, 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 the great, the great uh, leader who led the Reformation, Reformation movement, said of this sentence that it is not only the very center of Romans, but it's the very center of the New Testament that all of the New Testament hangs on this very long Greek sentence that describes to us our present after but now. It is one of the clearest and tightest summaries of the gospel in all of the Bible. And if you understand this sentence, you will understand the gospel. Here's a few things I want to highlight out of this sentence. First, the righteousness apart from the law. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now the righteousness 
has been manifested apart from the law. Why does the righteousness need to be manifested apart from the law? What does righteousness even mean? The word righteousness means the quality of being right according to man's standards. This may be achievable, but according to God's, this is impossible. The righteousness of God has to be manifested apart from the law. Remember, we said in verse 23 that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So as we lay our righteous deeds on the balance scales of the universe, God lays his standard on the other side in which his glory demands of us. And we find ourselves in an impossible measurement. We can't measure up to that standard. When the prophet Isaiah had a vision in Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament, he goes into the temple, and the temple is filled with the glory of God, and there are angels that are, that are pronouncing God's praises in the temple. And Isaiah sees all of this glory of God on display. He becomes overwhelmed by it, and he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. When he sees the glory of God, Isaiah's response is not, I'm right at home. Let me go take a seat and see, you know, see, what, see what other fireworks are going to be on, be on display in this temple. No, his response is, I have no business being in this room with this much glory and this much sin on me. When Peter encounters God in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verse 8, and he, he encounters Jesus, and Jesus tells him to cast his net. They haven't caught any fish. He says, cast your net. Peter, Peter says, hey, listen, listen, random guy. We've been fishing all day. There hasn't been any fish. Jesus says, hey, go cast it again. They cast it again, and now, all of a sudden, all the fish are in the net, and they, and they need help to pull the net out. Peter realizes that God is in his midst, and he says, hey, man, why don't you stay all day? We, 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 we could go down a, a little bit further down the Jordan, or maybe we can go to this river, or maybe we can go to this bank and do a little more fishing. No, that's not what Peter says. Peter says instead, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When Peter recognizes how much glory is in front of him, he says, I have no right to be in this room, or I have no right to be in this boat with you. See, we simply aren't good enough to measure up to such perfection and holiness and glory. And so God, in order to show himself gracious to you, merciful to you, and at the same time just, in his universal display of justice, moves outside of you to secure your righteousness. He doesn't get your righteousness from you. He moves outside of you to get your righteousness. You say, what does that mean? He moves to his son. The righteousness of God, Paul says, set apart, has been manifested apart from the law. It's, not no longer, it's no longer based on you doing everything right because we, because we know we can't, right? We can't do it. So the law even, so the law and the prophets bear witness to this reality. They pointed to Jesus. As you read the Old Testament, they're pointing to this Savior. And Paul continues in verse 22, and he says the righteousness of God, that righteousness that's been set apart, has now been manifested through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, all have sinned 
and falling short of the glory of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is that we are all in this condition, and so we all need this righteousness. Are you tracking with that? We need this righteousness, this righteousness that went up, that came apart from you, this righteousness that he had to go to his own son in order to secure for you. He reads in verse 24 that we are justified by his grace as a gift. And so the gospel is about righteousness, right standing with God. How do I I get right standing with God? Well, I don't get right standing with God by just doing right things. I get right standing with God by going to the one in which he has set his righteousness upon, which is his son, Jesus Christ, and trusting him by faith. That's how I get right standing with God. Well, how am I justified? What does justification even mean? Well, it's a court term. It's a courtroom term. In the courts of, 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 of Rome, in the courts of the ancient days, the ideal of justified means to be pronounced not guilty. It's a legal term. You are pronounced not guilty. And so God says that through this same Christ, the righteousness of God, has been set apart on him, but also through this same Christ, we are justified by his grace as a gift. And so you are pronounced not guilty, not because you're not guilty. You are pronounced not guilty as a gift from God based on the credit that has been laid on you through Jesus. So picture yourself in the courtroom and you have the prosecuting attorney who is Satan. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. And then you have yourself, And then you have a holy judge, and Satan is going all down the list of your rap sheet, and it's an ugly one, let me tell you that, at least mine is, a really, really, really ugly rap sheet, and he's laying it down before God, and he was like, man, this dude is, he is a crook, and he is a womanizer, man, he, you should, you should have seen him back in the day, God, man, Oh, well, maybe you did see him. You see everything. But, man, you should, you should have seen that guy. You should have seen all the ugly things that he did. You should, have see, you should see the things he thinks about right now. You should see, you should see how, how, how little he, he cares. He cares about the things he should care about. You should see how little he reads his Bible, how little he prays. You should see how bad he messes up his family life. You should see the arguments him and his wife gets into. This is ridiculous, guy. You're going to stand for this? Are you going to stand for this? And he lays it down. He lays the rap sheet down. And there's law breaking all throughout your rap sheet. And God is on the the throne and he says, well, I got to punish because if I don't punish, I'm not just. Right? I mean, if God lets a murderer go free, you're going to be like, hey, what what happened to him? What are you doing? thought you was a good God. So... God does something spectacular. Jesus, as his very own son, who has the same authority and operates with the same authority, he takes off his robe and he says, I'll become the defendant. And I'll take the punishment. I'll absorb the punishment for the crime of high treason against the holy God. So you are made not guilty because Jesus absorbs the punishment for your guilt. 
That's what it means to be justified as a gift. And you say, well, what, what did you do? What did you do? What did you do to get Jesus off the stand and to take your place? How many laps around the courtroom did you have to run? And the answer is that you didn't do anything but trusted him. You trusted him. And in trusting him, he took your place. That's what it means to be justified by his grace. Not only are we justified by his grace, but we have redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 24, it continues, through the redemption, and we are, ju and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. According to the new dictionary of biblical theology, redemption is the release of people, animals, property from bondage through outside help. It's the release from bondage. What we sometimes fail to realize is that sin is not simply what we do, but it is, it is a part of who we are without Jesus. We are not simply actively sinning. We are bound to sin. You aren't just doing something. You are mastered by it. The Bible describes it as bondage. Paul writes three chapters later in Romans chapter 6, what then, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? He says, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. He says, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, slaves to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He describes your condition as slavery, slavery to sin, mastered by sin. A lot of us say, well, I'm not a slave to anything. Why don't you just try stopping it then? See how that goes for you. See how that works out. Just stop doing it. Just stop. Stop saying it. We'll give you a few minutes and see how that works out, right? You are mastered by it. And so what Jesus does is that he provides redemption. So, so, the, so the work of salvation is not just a rescue from the punishment of sin. It is liberation from the bondage of sin. Christ not only saves you from your sin, but he frees you from the mastery of sin in whom the Son sets free, the gospel tells us. It's free indeed. He redeems you. You receive freedom from outside help, that outside help being Jesus Christ. You receive it how? Because you do a bunch of great things? Nah. You receive it through faith. You receive it through faith. Verse 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Propitiation, what is that? Why is Paul using all these strange words? These are words we need to know, saints. 
These are words we need to study. These are words I must teach, right? What good is the people of the book if they don't know the book, right? We have to navigate this. And so propitiation is the idea of having a substitution, substitutionary sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice that atones, a substitutionary sacrifice that satisfies the one who is warranted of the sacrifice. And so God requires justice for sin. And the Old Testament shows us that over and over and over and over and over again, whenever sin is committed, somebody's animal got to get got, right? Some blood has to be spilled. Every time, whenever sin is committed, somebody's animal has to be slaughtered. Some blood has to be thrown across the altar. The Bible says that without the spilling of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin. Somebody's blood has to be spilled. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see this constant effort of spilling blood and spilling blood and spilling blood and poor little Bo Peep after poor little Bo Peep after poor little Bo Peep goes to that altar every single time, right? And then finally, finally, Jesus comes. And the Bible says that God put him forward as the ultimate propitiation by his blood to be received. How? By doing a bunch of good things? No. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So listen to this. The Bible says that God bared with us in awaiting the time of his son's arrival and that all of the sacrifices were meant to lead up to the ultimate sacrifice. He tolerated it up until the point of his son. And when his son came, finally now a sufficient sacrifice for all the sins of all the world. And there is never another sheep that has to go to the slaughter on your behalf. There was one lamb that went to the slaughter on your behalf. And he is infinitely sufficient to carry the weight of all of our sin and to satisfy God's wrath against sin. That's what it means to have a propitiation through his blood. So righteousness that's set apart from the law, redemption that's that's given us, being set free from the bondage and the yoke of sin, propitiation, having a sufficient sacrifice to atone for all of our sin, and justification being declared not guilty because the judge became the defendant and absorb the crime or the punishment for the crime. How do we receive these things? We've been alluding to it over and over and over again. He says in the last verse, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, God decided, God, because he is good, must 
execute justice. So how does he show himself just and set free a bunch of criminals? A bunch of people that he says about them, none of them are righteous. None of them are good. All of them are guilty. That's what's being said in Romans 3. How does he do this? How does he show himself just and declare not guilty, guilty people? And the Bible says that he does it through, the, through Jesus so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so it's through faith in Christ that God becomes just because he lays your punishment on his son. And it's through faith in Christ that God becomes your justifier because because of the weight of your sin being placed on the son, now you are set free. You tracking with that? Notice that, that as we read those, those, that passage, that sentence, that long sentence, in verses 21 through 26, notice that all the things that we've mentioned above are applied to us through our response of faith. The righteousness of God that comes from the law, apart, that comes apart from the law, rather, is given to all who believe through their faith. In other words, your works don't bring salvation. Your faith in Christ will. Your trust in Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and the Lord of all will. How will you be declared not guilty? It says, through your faith in Jesus. How do you apply the propitiation, the, the atoning sacrifice on behalf of your sin? Through your faith in Jesus. How will you get the sacrifice applied to you? Through your faith in Jesus. How will you re receive freedom from your sin or from the bondage of your sin? Through your faith in Jesus. And so it's about trust in Christ. Now, let me say this as we close it out. Trust in Christ is not absent of works. The Bible talks about a faith being dead if it has no works accompanied with it. So in other words, if I say I trust Jesus, but I just don't do anything he says, you might not trust Jesus. I'm just saying, I don't know. I don't know. If you say, I trust my mom, but I don't do anything my mom says, what do you think? I don't know. Trust my dad, I just don't do anything he says. Trust my woman, I just don't do anything she says. Well, that might be true, possibly, for some of us. We need to get that right, fellas, if that's the case. But when we say, I trust God, but don't do anything that he says, it, it means that we don't trust God. And so we're not saved by our works. But our works should at some point show that we are trusting in God. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, right? Our works don't save us. Our works don't free us. But there are works that accompany the Christian life. There, Paul, I mean, uh, James says that without works, your faith is not active. It is dead. As a matter of fact, he says, you know what? Demons say that they trust God, they believe God, and they're right. They do believe that God is one. That doesn't save them. Demons know God is real, and yet they hate his guts. Are you tracking with that? And so all of these things will be applied if you simply trust in 
Jesus? Do you want to be free? Trust in Jesus. Do you want to go to the do you want to go to the throne of heaven someday when he calls you home and stand at the gates and have him pronounce before all of the universe that Brian Crawford is not guilty? Trust in Jesus. Do you want to be right before God? How many of us struggle with this reality of, Lord, I just want to be right before you. You, you. you establish that righteousness not by trying to do more right. You establish that righteousness first and foremost by trusting in Jesus. Trust him with your life. That is the gospel message. The gospel, the gospel can be part, I mean, your testimony can be part of the gospel, but it is not the gospel. Your transformed life should be a part of the gospel, but it is not the gospel. You viewing your neighbors as in, 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 the, in the same way that you view yourself and loving your neighbors like you love yourself and sacrificing for your neighbors should be part of the gospel life, but it is not the gospel. The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ granting us righteousness that we could not grant ourselves. It is the message of Jesus Christ redeeming us from the mastery and the curse of sin. It is the message of Jesus Christ becoming the perfect sacrifice that satisfies God's justice by dying on the cross at Calvary. It is the power of God that leads to salvation for all that believe, whether Jew or Greek. It is the message of Jesus Christ dying dying on the cross and absorbing the wrath of God that was due to all of us. That is the gospel. And may we believe it, amen? And may we trust it. Let's pray. God, we love you, we thank you, and we give you praise, glory, and honor. Would you help us, Lord God? Trust your gospel and trust your son. If there be any in this room, Lord God, who, Lord, Lord, have yet to yield their lives to, to our beautiful Savior, we pray, Lord God, that by your Spirit you would prick and convict and stir their hearts and turn their hearts and their attention towards you. And Father, for those that have trusted you, Lord God, may we rest, rest in the salvation that you have given us. May we be encouraged in the salvation that you have provided us. May we find joy in our salvation. Lord, we love you and thank you. And these things we ask and pray in your son's name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.